In the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon was warning the church against what was known as the downgrade. And it was a downgrade controversy. But what he was doing was he was warning the church that they were getting away from sound doctrine and sound theology. And in the process of doing so, there was a lowering of the view of God. And I would say to you that a hundred years later, or a little bit more than that even, Spurgeon was so right. So absolutely right. As we see in churches today that there has been a, a devaluing, a lowering of God's place as God. As being high and lofty and lifted up before men. Glorious. And this has been eroded and cheapened and lessened. His work as the all-powerful, sovereign God who is God has been diminished in the eyes of people in church as man has been elevated. And what you need to do and what you can do and you just need to be better and you just need to do a little bit more and you'll be alright. Man gets elevated and God has been lowered. And in the eyes of many people in our day today, rather than standing before Him in awe and reverence and fear, He's just a big guy upstairs. Or in the eyes of some, He's like a cosmic vending machine where you put in a prayer and you pull the slot and you expect Him to make you wealthy or healthy or whatever else you may need, He'll give to you if you go to Him in the right way. It's a cheapening, a lessening of who God is as God. The same thing has carried over also regarding our Savior Jesus. In the eyes of many, in terms of theology, He has been made to be weak and even impotent when it comes to doing anything. It is all dependent upon man. He was the once almighty prophet, priest, and king seen in the Scriptures before congregations and before men. The all-powerful, the one who saving work on the cross brings people to Himself. Well, that saving work on the cross has now been lowered to He died to make it possible for people to be saved. He didn't accomplish anything unless you make a choice. Unless you make a decision. Unless you come forward. In other words, if nobody responded, then His work on the cross would have been totally futile. Nothing would have happened. And when you couple that with what Paul says in Ephesians, that you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins, nobody can come forward. So what a weak and impotent God I will never forget. Sitting and I was working on a quote-unquote Christian radio station. And one of the programs that was on was Jack Wurtzen and Word of Life. And he would oftentimes say, you know, God has done all He can do for you. Jesus has done all He can do for you. The rest is up to you. 
His hands are tied. And I would yell out in the middle of that radio station, Who tied God's hands? But this is the picture of Christ painted by churches and preachers in our day. His hands are tied. No, they're not, my friends. And this is what we want to see from the Scriptures today. No matter what you may have heard, no matter what you may think, His hands are not tied. And this is not the way He is presented in the Scriptures. And it is not the way He presents Himself in the Scriptures as a weak and impotent man whose hands are tied and He has to depend upon you to take one step towards Him. And then maybe He'll do something. This is not the God of the Bible. He is our great prophet. He is our great priest. And He is our great King. Look at Revelation chapter 3 as we see further in our study that this is what He's saying right here in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. I remind you that we are under the broad heading, the first heading really in our study, that the Holy One, Jesus, is addressing the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. We've seen from this text who the angel of the church is, as He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. We talked about the angel. We talked about the church. And we're now dealing with the one who is addressing the church. The one who is pictured in verse in chapter 1 as holding the seven stars. And those are the angels of the church. And the one who walks among the lampstands, is the one who walks in the midst of His churches. And we are now addressing or seeing how He identifies Himself to this church in Philadelphia. And the first thing He says is, I am the Holy One. And we talked about the holiness of Christ, the complete and pure holiness of who Jesus was, the spotless Lamb of God, who offered Himself as a sacrifice because... He was completely holy and able to do so. And then we saw Him last Lord's Day as the One who is true. He is the truth. Everything that He said is true. He is the embodiment of truth. God incarnate came to man, dwelled among man, and He is described in the Scriptures as true. Not just saying what is true, but He is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So, Jesus here says to the church at Philadelphia, He who is holy, who is true. Everything about Jesus is the truth. And that is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. They may have their Bhagavad Gita's. They may have their Book of Mormons. They may have their Korans. We have the truth. And no matter what they say, they are wrong. Because He is right. And He says, there is no other way to God. No one comes to the Father but through Me. The truth. It is truth that sets men free from their sins. And so we preach the truth. Jesus Christ high and lofty, lifted up, Jesus Christ. And He says, as I am lifted up before men, I will draw them to Myself. So we lift Him up as presenting Him as the truth. And that is what God uses 
to save men. That's where we looked last Lord's Day as He said that He will lead His church into sanctification through the truth. That's why we want it. That's why we want it. Because we want to be sanctified. He says He will save men by the truth. Sanctify men by the truth. And so we pray that God would use the truth even here to save men and to sanctify those who are saved. Now today we travel a little further in this verse as we see here that He says that He who is holy, He who is true, who has the key of David. We want to begin to open up what our Lord is talking about when He says that He has the key of David. I want you to know that what He's speaking of here is the fact that He is the fulfillment of the promise made in the Old Covenant to David. The Sixth Covenant given in the Old Testament era was the Davidic Covenant. It was the last covenant made in the Old Testament economy. And it was what God spoke to David that we want to address here this morning. And I'm going to take the time to do this because it is a vital subject and it is so misconstrued in our day. It's part of that whole downgrade thing. Jesus isn't king yet, some people would suggest. He won't be king until some other time when He sets up a reign. I tell you, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that He is king now. And this is what He is talking about in this passage. Look with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I am going to go through some of this rather quickly. So if you need further study, you can ask me or you can study for your own edification as you look at these texts. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is where we find the Davidic covenant. And here we have the promise to David of a permanent kingdom. As we read here down in verse, well, we'll pick it up in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Notice it is singular, your descendant. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. We're only going to read that for right now, but this is part of the promise that God made, part of the covenant that God made with David. That following him, one will come, a descendant. And the text says that God will establish his kingdom and that that kingdom will last forever. The throne. That kingdom, He will never cease to have one on that throne because it will be an eternal kingdom. It will last forever. This was a great promise for Israel. And Israel loved this because they loved David. Some of you may remember when we talked about what was going on in, in the account of the incarnation of Christ and why they called Bethlehem the city of David. 
Because they loved David. David was the great king. David was the one they loved. And they knew this. They knew that one day God would establish His throne forever. Now, the problem with a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees and a lot of the zealots in the day of Jesus was that they expected it to be an earthly kingdom right now and that the Messiah would come and He'd kick Rome out and He'd build up this great Israeli kingdom right there. But that's not what God said. Let's see how this is fulfilled a little further. Now, you go to Isaiah chapter 9. With 2 Samuel, we saw the promise to David of a permanent kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 9, we see that this is part of the promise of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon His shoulders. The government. Now, how can that be? Let's look a little further. And His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This little child will indeed be divine. Not only does He say Wonderful Counselor, but He will be Mighty God. Oh, that men would understand that Jesus was indeed Mighty God. A little further. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has accomplished this. Do you see that? Do you see what it says? The Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is the one who is going to establish that throne promised to David in 2 Samuel hundreds of years before. That covenant made with David promising that he would have one to sit on the throne forever. And here Isaiah says that a son will be given, a child will be born. It's the Messiah. And it is this Messiah who will establish that throne. And look what it says towards the end of verse 7. From then on and forevermore. What do you think from then on means? It means when He comes. It means when He comes as the incarnate Son of God, the mighty God, when He comes, then the kingdom is established and it will last forever. How can I be so confident? Because I know the rest of the Bible. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It was the promise to David of a permanent kingdom. It was part of the promise of the Messiah. And here we have the promise spoken of as applied to Jesus. Luke chapter 1, and here the angel comes to Mary. Gabriel is there in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. In the line of David. Had to be in order for him to be Messiah. Had to be in the line of David. So he comes to her, tells her that 
she will be the one to bear, to conceive, verse 31, in the womb and bear a son and you shall call him Jesus. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. And he is, right? Great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That's correct. The Son of the Most High means that he is indeed divine as the very Son of God. But look also, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Who is the one to fulfill the Davidic covenant made with David by God back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Who is the one? Jesus. The one who was born to Mary. It says in the text, He will have the throne of His father David. Jesus came in fulfillment of these prophecies. This is who He was. The mighty God. The Messiah. And the one who would establish the throne of David forever. All of the prophets, all of the prophecies pointed to and led to Jesus and what He would do. We're going to see that in a few minutes as well. But for now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're coming back to Luke. We're going back and forth. I'm sorry to do that, but this is a uh, kind of a progression more in theology rather than in the way it's laid out in the Scriptures. But Matthew chapter 12. Here we have in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus applies the promise to Himself. If you look down to verse 22, what's going on? I love to get what's going on when Jesus teaches. In verse 22, there was brought to Him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. You understand that? He can't see. He can't speak. He was blind and dumb. And he, he was demon-possessed. And he's brought to Jesus. And it was he was brought to Him. Some friends, some loved ones, some, some buddies brought this man to Jesus. And they bring him to Jesus. And the text simply says, And He healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. It was an amazing thing. Here's a guy who who is blind and he can't speak. And now all of a sudden, he's able to see. Can you imagine what that's like? It doesn't say that he was born blind. People went blind a lot during the New Testament era because, believe it or not, of all of the dust. There was an enormous amount of dust in the streets. You didn't have paved roads and it got into eyes. And so that's why blindness was oftentimes brought on just from life and living amidst the dust, and poor hygiene, and things like that. So it doesn't say he was born blind, but yet he was blind. And this guy, even worse, couldn't speak, and he was demon-possessed. Jesus heals him. So now he can see, and now he can speak. And what do you think that would bring about with with the people that were there? Well, look at the verse. And all the multitudes were amazed. All the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this cannot be the son of David. Can he? You know, that's a question that is actually what we commonly say today is a rhetorical question. It is a statement. They were saying, this is the son of David. 
Now we're going to see another concept here right in this text that we always have to keep in mind as we read the Scriptures. Because it says in the very first portion of verse 23, and all the multitudes were amazed. So they were astonished. They were amazed. They were astonished. And they're going, this is the King of David. This is the King. This is the Son of David. But you read the next verse, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So when it said in verse 23, all the multitudes, it did not mean every single man, woman, boy, or girl. Because the Pharisees sure weren't amazed by it. The Pharisees weren't happy about it. This term all is what we call an absolute term used in a relative sense. And it is often used not only in the Bible, but you use it all the time. We all do. Somebody came in the other night and said, How is everybody? I said, I don't know everybody. And that's true. I don't know everybody. The term everybody is an absolute term, meaning everybody, but it's used in a relative sense. In other words, everybody that I know. How is everybody that's here? How is everybody that's in the church? And you use this term, all is used often in the Bible the same way. They were all there. If we use that term today, they were all there. Who do we mean? Everybody? No, we mean all that we know. All of the church. It's an absolute term used in a relative sense. So all the multitudes were excited and amazed about what Jesus did, but not the Pharisees. They were not very happy about it. In fact, here we have the Pharisees that would just not get what Jesus was doing or they could not accept who Jesus was. Their hearts were hardened to the depth of depravity that they accused Him of being demonic, of casting out demons by the Prince of Darkness Himself, the Prince of Demons. Boy, that takes a lot of, a lot of nerve. Here's this one performing these wonderful miracles, helping people, healing people, raising people from the dead, and they say He's demonic. And Jesus then goes on to teach them the truth. I mean, the, the depth of evil in their hearts... But Jesus, beginning in verse 25 and following, begins to refute them. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. But notice what he says. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. What is he referring to? The kingdom of darkness. The prince of demons is the prince over the kingdom of darkness. And if Jesus was there doing good and casting out demons, which is what He did, if He's casting out demons, then the kingdom of darkness would be divided. This is what Jesus is saying. If I'm casting out demons by demons, then that kingdom is divided. But it's a kingdom. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. And how then how shall his kingdom stand? 
He's making a point. If, if Satan's casting out Satan, then his kingdom is divided and it can't stand. But it is a kingdom. Notice verse 27. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your children, do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. So here he is refuting. Refuting them and making clear that he is indeed not a part of the kingdom of darkness. But what kingdom is he of? Look at verse 25. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is my point. This is what I want us to see. Here is Jesus in the midst of ministry, doing this good work, healing this man, casting out demons. And what does he say? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is among you. He doesn't say, well, then the kingdom of God is going to be here pretty soon. Just a couple of thousand more years. The kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is among men. He was truly the promised Messiah as He truly embodied everything promised about the Messiah. That He would be mighty God, Prince of Peace. As He was truly said to be the One who would sit on the throne of David forever. The Kingdom came when Jesus came. This is the teaching of the Scripture. The Kingdom of Heaven has come. Look at Luke again. This time chapter 20. And here we have a very interesting passage where our Lord Jesus shows the promise being possible through Him. How could this be? And He shows how it could be in this text. Luke chapter 20, look down to verse 41. Well, you know what? Once again, I'm going to back up a little bit. And uh, Jesus is answering some questions prior to this. And the Pharisees, or actually the Sadducees, came to Him with this question about this one uh, woman who was married to these seven brothers and they all died. So in heaven's, in heaven, whose wife shall she be? And Jesus answers them and says, you just don't know the Scriptures. And He teaches them that there is life after death because the Sadducees didn't believe that there was life after death. And Jesus says, there is life after death. Jesus teaches them that God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, showing by the tense that He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive. Obviously. Because He didn't say He was the God of Abraham. But after He teaches them that, they didn't even want to ask Him any more questions. And they said, Teacher, You have spoken well. In verse 40, For they did not have the courage to question Him any longer about anything. So now what does He do? He questions them. Alright, you guys, you're all done. Now let me ask you a question. And what question does he ask them? How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? 
This is what we're talking about. Remember? The Messiah had to be in the line of David. He had to be the son of David. But, Jesus says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, Jesus even mentions the book. David himself says in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 110, by the way, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. David, therefore, calls him Lord. How and how is he his son? Wait a minute, you get this? In other words, he's the son. How can he be then the Lord? If the father would be like the head of the son, the father would be the the quote-unquote Lord in the household. But David, the father, the Messiah is the son, yet the Messiah or the Christ is the Lord. How can that be? Now, when you look at this and their response, you hear crickets. Because they couldn't answer him. They didn't know what to say. But I hope you know what to say because this is Jesus' point. The Messiah was from the line of David and in that sense indeed He is the Son of David. But the Messiah is God. And therefore as God, He is what? Lord. King. He is the eternal Lord. The eternal King. As we read in Revelation King of kings, Lord of lords. You know what that statement means? That of all the kings of all the world, including even David, Jesus is king. He is the king of the kings. King with a capital K of all the kings with a small k. And He is the Lord of lords. King with a capital K Lord with a capital L. Lord of all the lords. He is the absolute ruler. This is your Jesus. This is the Jesus of the Bible. He is not weak. He is not impotent. He is not twisting his hands going, Oh, I sure hope these people do the right thing. I sure hope someone comes forward today. My hands are tied. That's an impotent God. And it's not the God of the Bible. The Jesus presented in the Bible is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Oh, we serve a great God. We serve a King who is King. Don't worry about the government in Washington, D.C. We serve the king of those kings. We serve the king who is king. And this is what Jesus was teaching even those Pharisees whose eyes were blinded and whose hearts were hardened that He was the Messiah, the King of kings. The One who fulfilled the promised throne of David. Now, Jesus is indeed King, the promised King, the promised Lord in the Old Testament. And this is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you would, please. Here we have 
on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and these once timid, shy, frightened disciples who were in a room with the doors closed have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. They understand the things of the Gospel. God enlightens them to the truth. The Holy Spirit brings back the things that Jesus taught them. And Peter boldly speaks to all the people who were gathered there. And I say all the people in an absolute term used in a relative sense. But all those people that had come to Jerusalem for this pilgrim feast, they were all there from all kinds of countries all around. And that's when Jesus... Uh, Jesus said what happened to them. You will be witnesses to me, to all the nations, to the end of the earth. And little did they know it would happen within days or a day. And here they are. And Peter stands up before all these people from all over the then known world. And he begins to preach from the Scriptures. And he preaches to them Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. And he comes down to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you that regarding our patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David ain't your Messiah. David was a great king, but David is dead. And he's still dead. But Jesus, Jesus is not so. But because David was a prophet, he said and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath. That's the Davidic covenant to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. You see, Peter heard Jesus preach. Peter heard what Jesus said to those Pharisees. And he repeats it and he teaches them. Here is what the Messiah is. The Son of David who is now seated on the throne as promised through David. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord! The Messiah is Lord. And of course, with that, the Holy Spirit pierces their hearts and they cry out, Brethren, what must we do? When you see Jesus as the one who is high and exalted and lifted up, you see yourself for what you are as a sinner, a sinner, an unworthy sinner, worthy only of the judgment of God in hell. And you say, what must we do? How can we escape the judgment? Our hands are blood-soaked with the blood of the Messiah. How can we be saved from the wrath to come? And Peter tells them to repent and to come to Christ. And so here we have the fact 
the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment of the One who is to sit on the throne of David. He is the fulfillment. It is not that Peter says that He will send one and He will one day be the one to sit on the throne, but He is the one who sits on the throne of David. This is our Savior. I got one more text. Hebrews chapter 1. One more text for this aspect. Hebrews chapter 1. Here is a summation of some of what we've been speaking about. The writer to the book of Hebrews says in verse 1 of chapter 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Listen, Jesus was spoken about of the prophets, but now He is the one who is speaking. He is the truth. And this one who is speaking, this one who is the truth, is the the very one who made the world. Verse 3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. So here is our Jesus. The Messiah has come. He is the exact representation of God. And He is seated at the right hand of God. And what does that make Him? Look at verse 8. But of the Son, this is Jesus, He says, Thy throne, O God. Speaking of Jesus. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, Thy God, hath anointed Thee with the oil of gladness above Thy companions. He is the eternal King forever and ever. He is on the throne and the scepter shall not depart from His throne. He is the eternal ruler. Now let's go back to Revelation 3 and put some of this together. Revelation chapter 3. You see people, I I know that there is false teaching in our day that seems to say that the kingdom of God is going to happen at some future time. And what I want for us to see from the Scripture is how Jesus is portrayed. How He even portrays Himself. Not as a king who will come at a future date, but as the king who did come when He was incarnated. The king at His birth. The king when he was here. The king while he was among men. David's son, yet David's Lord. The true and eternal king. Jesus is presented in the Scriptures as king. Jesus presented Himself in the Scriptures as king. And here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, this is what He's saying to the church at Philadelphia. I'm the Holy One. I'm the One who is true. And I am the One who has the key of David. I am the King. I am the Lord. 
I am the head of my church. This is what he is saying. I am the fulfillment of those promises to David. Now, just really quick, look at Isaiah 22. Isaiah chapter 22. And down to verse 22, as it speaks regarding the Messiah. Isaiah 22, verse 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. What does Jesus say to Philadelphia in Revelation 3? I have the key of David. And who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts and no one opens. That's Jesus. The one who has the key to the house of David. The one who is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise that He would have one to sit upon His throne. He is the King. I urge you people and I, I adjure you from the Scriptures, do not be as the scribes and Pharisees who denied that Jesus was the King, who could not accept that Jesus was the King. Do not be as some today in churches who think Jesus' hands are tied. Jesus' hands are not tied. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the one who ties other people's hands. He opens and no one can shut. He shuts and no one can open. His hands are not tied. He ties others' hands. He is the King. He is the Lord. This is what He's showing to this church. So I say to you, do not be as the scribes and the Pharisees. See Him as the Scripture portrays Him. The One who has fulfilled everything God promised, even to David, exactly as God said it would happen. Don't be as those who think that the kingdom is far off either and hasn't happened yet. How many of you were alive when John wrote this to the church of Philadelphia from Jesus? I doubt if any of you were there. So in other words, this happened long before you were alive. The kingdom is not far off. The kingdom had already been established in Christ. He is the king of his kingdom. Don't think that the kingdom hasn't happened yet. Don't think that the kingdom won't happen until a millennial reign. It has happened with Christ and it continues with you. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I get excited about this stuff myself. Colossians chapter 1. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes to the church here in Colossae and says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But now look down at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He delivered us from the dominion of darkness. Or from the domain of darkness. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. What is the domain of darkness? I remind you of what Jesus said to the Pharisees before. 
A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. What kingdom was he talking about? The kingdom of the domain of darkness with the prince of darkness as its prince and leader. He was talking about the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Satan. And what does he go on to say? For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into what? The kingdom of His beloved Son. If there was no kingdom of Jesus yet, how could Paul say that you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light? And I say this to you. There are, according to Scripture, only two real kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and their prince Satan, of whom most of the world serves. That's a sad reality. The kingdom of darkness, whom most of the world serves with their prince Satan. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and your desires he, you do, his desires you do. And that's the kingdom of darkness. Or the kingdom of light, where Prince Jesus, who is the light, rules. He is the king of his kingdom of light. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. If you are saved, you have a king. And His name is Jesus. King Jesus. But if there was no kingdom of Jesus yet, what kingdom are you in? If there's only two and His hasn't happened yet, then what kingdom are you in? I tell you, this teaching that His kingdom won't happen until a certain time off in the future is heresy. His kingdom was established with King Jesus. He is the King. He is the Lord. King of kings. Lord of lords. And He's your King. He's your Lord. If you are saved by His grace. Thank God I'm not still in the kingdom of darkness. Thank God I'm not still serving the prince of demons. Thank God we have a gracious, merciful, loving King. King Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying to him. Now I'm going to put these three together. I am the Holy One. I am the truth. I am the King. Remember I said that we used to speak of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king? And indeed He is. Here He identifies Himself to them as the Holy One. The One who is pure and spotless and holy and therefore able to offer Himself as an offering to God. He is our priest. Our great high priest who did not offer an animal or a goat or a bull or anything else. He offered Himself not within a tabernacle made by hands, but right to the heavenly God, the Father. He offered Himself. He is the Holy One, the Priest. And He is the true One, the prophet. Everything that He says is true. 
All that He is, is truth. He is priest. He is prophet. And He is King. The high priestly offices of Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king is how He presents Himself to this church in Philadelphia. Only we've reversed the order. He says, priest, prophet, king. Very often we say, prophet, priest, and king. But this is the Jesus of the Bible. This is how He presents Himself. This is who He is. And I pray that you are one who is under His government. And that's what He's talking about when He speaks about having the key of David. He is the one who has the scepter. He is the one who has the power. He is the one who yields authority. And we will pick up with that next Lord's Day as He speaks about the doors that He opens and the doors that He shuts. And we won't take very long to talk about that and we will then begin to look into the rest of Revelation chapter 3 and 7 and 8 and 9 and following. So that's where we're going. But oh, today, be sure that you take away the fact that you serve a king. And you're in the kingdom of light. The kingdom of Jesus. Not the kingdom of darkness. And how did that happen? Well, the one who can open doors that no man can shut opened your heart. Opened your eyes. Opened you to believe. Just as those to Peter, to whom Peter was preaching and they cried out, Brethren, what must we do? And because it says the Spirit pierced their hearts. Well, that's what happened to you. You didn't do it. Christ did it. He pierced your heart with His Word and saved you by His grace and took you from dead and made you to be alive from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Praise God! He is the living, working King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray.